0: Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. Now join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith.
1: Does Jesus expect his followers to be perfect? That is the question that we will answer on this episode of Word Matters. I'm Brandon Smith, spokesperson for the CSB, along with Trevin Wax, the co-host, as always, the Bible publisher here at B&H. And uh, we are joined today by Dr. Jonathan Pennington. He's the Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, also oversees uh, research doctoral studies there. And uh, he's the author of a couple of really great books uh, in the Gospels of Matthew, Reading the Gospels Wisely, and Heaven and Earth in the Gospel of Matthew. So, Dr. Pennington, thanks for hopping on with us today.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Uh,
2: Dr. Pennington, we have you on for this uh, particular text that we're going to be looking at, Matthew 548, uh, because uh, you've done so much work in the Gospels, and uh, I I have benefited extensively from your, um, reading the gospels wisely. And I want to recommend that to our listeners. Um, so, so much good, uh, biblical interpretation, hermeneutic there, um, as to, um, as to how to read the gospels wisely. And so I just, I want to thank you and appreciate your work on that.
0: Well, you're very kind. Thank you.
2: Uh, so today we're looking at Matthew 5:48, and I'm going to read this in the CSB, but I'm actually going to back up and read from verse 44, because as you'll see from uh, some of the uh, comments and the different interpretations on this passage, the, the context matters um, quite a bit. So uh, beginning of verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So there, that last verse, be perfect, is the the question, what exactly is Jesus asking of his followers. So we'll talk about some different views, and then we'll we'll hear from Dr. Pennington. Yeah. So here, uh, let's look
1: at the first view here real quick. Uh, so this first view uh, would be the idea that this instruction is for saints, but not all Christians. So kind of a, a uh, delineation there. Uh, so you know there are general standards for all of Christian conduct, but then uh, there are these kind of levels of protection of uh, perfection that can be attained uh, only by the holiest among us, like Trevin Wax. Who becomes a saint? In a saint, not just a Christian. yes. Yeah, there's saint a good Trevin. ring
2: to that. So, um, yep that that obviously is a popular view in some Catholic circles. Right. Um, okay. Uh, another view is that this command is given so that every Christian will strive for a state of sinless perfection. Uh, perfect in this context. Uh, refers to striving to believe the right doctrine and then live accordingly, so uh, Christians can arrive at perfection in, in certain Christian virtues, particularly those related to the context here of loving one's neighbor and one's enemies. So, um, it, interesting though the the focus on uh, believing the right doctrine, you see that uh, come out in Luther's commentary on this. He he's not taking it this as a sinless perfection in the way that like a John Wesley. Uh, uh, might might take not this passage, but uh, the, the the doctrinal stance that some christians do attain a level of perfection but he does he he places this very much in a in a sense of doctrinally so he says to be perfect means here and everywhere also in scripture that in the first place the doctrine that we hold be entirely correct and perfect and then the life also be directed and move accordingly as here this doctrine is that we are to love not only those who do good to us but also our enemies he now who teaches this and lives according to this teaching he teaches and lives perfectly so believe the right thing teach the right thing Live according to what you believe. And that is the the view here.
1: So the third view uh, is the focus here is not on sinless perfection, uh, but on one way of translating uh, Jesus's Aramaic words. So uh, the emphasis is on the imitation of God. So, you know, be merciful as your father is merciful uh, in Luke 636, for example. So, you know, in context, being perfect. Uh, as F.F. Bruce said, is an all embracing without any restriction in your acts of mercy or kindness. So, uh, this is what God is like. So, this is what you're to be like. So, uh, a couple of different um, commentators ha- have commented on this in a, in a little bit different ways. Uh, Blongbird says it's better translated uh, whole or mature. So, be whole or be mature as a reflection of an underlying Aramaic term, tamim. So, that's where this uh, kind of Aramaic thing comes in. Uh, so, Jesus is not frustrating his hearers with an unachievable ideal. Uh, but challenging them to grow in obedience to God's will, to become more like him. That's what Blomberg says.
2: Yeah. And, and Scott McKnight has a little bit of a different emphasis and Scott's a friend of the podcast been on a couple of times. He he says the perfect of God in this text, if you take the context, is his love for all. So Jesus is urging his followers to be perfect in love, to love completely in the sense that they need to love everyone, not just fellow Jewish neighbors, but also enemy neighbors as well.
1: Yeah. And then Wesley, I mean, he falls somewhere in one of these. Um, it also depends on which Wesleyan you talk to, right? But. Uh, Wesley, I mean, I've never seen him. I've read uh, almost all of his sermons because I used to uh, work in the Methodist church uh, a long time ago, and that was one of my assignments. And um, yeah, I never saw him talk about the word Tamim, but I did see him say uh, things like, you know, of course, we're going to have incidental sins. We're going to have mistakes that we make uh, that may fall under sin that Christ's blood will have to cover. But um, he, God wouldn't give us a command that he doesn't expect us to strive after, right? So if he says, be perfect, you should strive after that. And he does believe that people could become perfect in love.
2: So that kind of falls into that, you know, being like God. Uh, so, yeah. Dr. Pennington, those are um, we re- we read the passage that is contested and gets a lot of conversation. We've looked at three views. Can you help us uh, understand how? I mean, you've written about how we can read the Gospels wisely. How can we read this passage wisely and and know how to apply it?
0: Yeah, great. Those, that, that was an interesting survey. The obvious short answer to Adelina Wisely is to buy my new book on the Sermon on the Mount. That's coming
2: out, <laughs> oh, is so that, that, is that's that going to be, cool. the, have you done the, um, your, your, your class that I actually took from you on the Sermon on the Mount is the, is that the basis for your new text coming out on it?
0: It, it is. Yeah. It's oh, been great. a long time coming. It's, uh, for about, well, for many years I've been teaching through the sermon and then for about five years I've been writing a commentary on the sermon, which is literally done now. I mean, I'm sending in the final manuscript tomorrow. So wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so it has been. um, You know, this text is very important and very disputed, as you noted. Um, I think the the short answer is the key to interpreting it, not surprisingly, and to reading it well, is to take it into the the context, really multiple contexts, of what's going on in the sermon, because the sermon itself is a very powerful, highly structured, beautiful piece of wisdom literature. Um, apocalyptic, eschatological wisdom literature, but it, you know it's it's a whole it's a it's a piece of art really. And so to to understand five forty eight is really requires a, an understanding of the whole sermon. And boy there's a lot of things I could say about that. I have 148,000 words worth of things <laughs> I've already said about it. So I'll try to condense it to a few. But um I, I would say that the the main argument of my um reading of the sermon that is coming out in this book um in a few months, is that the best readings of the sermon will understand it as sitting at the nexus of two um, very important contexts, historical and social contexts. One is the uh, Jewish wisdom literature tradition, um, which is coming into the New Testament very clearly, and it's one of the very important aspects of how Jesus is presented in the New Testament, especially maybe in Matthew, as a philosopher or sage. Um, in the, in Jewish sense, even like David and Solomon, who is a king, who is a wise man, uh, who teaches and instructs the way of God. And the other aspect of the uh, context of the the context of the Sermon on the Mount is the Greco-Roman virtue tradition, which, um, is also very important. There are lots of clues in the sermon that, that it is trafficking in similar ideas, uh, of Hellenistic of the Hellenistic world, including the word teleos, which is a very important concept and term uh, for the entire Greek virtue tradition, especially Aristotle. <clears throat> and and in fact, those two contexts that I've just described are not really just parallels. Those have already been interwoven deeply because, as mm. uh, you guys probably both know, and maybe many of the listeners would know that. Second Temple Judaism, or the age of the New Testament, has already been thoroughly Hellenized. I mean, all, all aspects of Judaism are, have been in some kind of interaction with Greek, Greek tradition, the most obvious evidence of which is that the New Testament is written in Greek, not in Hebrew, and that most people are reading a Greek Old Testament, not a Hebrew one. So right. um, but there, there are so many aspects of, the, of that. So, you know, there's a lot more we could say about that, but it. It comes down to teleos in this sense, and that that word, um, in both its Jewish tradition and its Greek tradition, does not mean perfect, not in the English sense of perfect, and that's why it's such a dilemma to translate it well. Um, and on the Jewish side, uh, that word does appear in the Greek Old Testament quite a bit. Um, it's the translation of a number of related concepts, but distinct concepts, including shalom. And as you mentioned from the Baltimore quote, mean which means wholeness, mm-hmm. peace, flourishing, wholeness, are behind that. Um, on the Greek side, on the uh, Greek philosophical side, as I mentioned, it's a very important term for the virtue ethics tradition as in Aristotle. And in fact, the on there the complete or whole person, which is language you'll see also in Paul, interestingly, um, is the one who has achieved eudaimonia, or human flourishing, through a practiced life of wisdom and virtue. Um, what, in fact, the Sermon on the Mount is going to end with, the, remember the contrasting pair at the end of a phronimos man and a moros man, a wisely learned man versus a or person or a um, foolish one, is the final image of the Sermon on the Mount. That's language right out of of uh, the greek tradition as well and the jewish tradition so um so the short quick answer that wasn't a short and quick answer but the (laughs) shortest answer i can give is that it is we have to understand that we're not with the english word perfect but as part of this wisdom tradition inviting people both in the greek and jewish side into wholeness or completeness and now there's more i could say but i should stop there and see if you want to
1: dialogue yeah maybe if you could if you could. Break down, kind of for you know your average lay person who might be listening how would you break down what is what does that mean to be whole like what so to be a wise person how would you kind of break that down real simply as far as what is that term really trying to say
0: yeah yeah good um well i would say that it means i I say it positively in this way that we can be teleos or we can be whole without being perfect And, Mm -hmm. and in fact i would even say it like this, we can actually be blameless before God without being faultless. And the reason is, is because what God is wanting of us is, is not a a perfection in the sense of never sinning. I mean, that would be ideal, but he knows that we are but dust, And he knows that that is in our nature. What God wants from us is a dedicatedness, a wholeness of heart Mm -hmm. um, that is dedicated to him, not a perfection of behavior As we grow in wholeness of heart, our behavior will grow in greater consistency, and we might say godliness. But what God is looking for is a kind of person, not a kind of behavioral pattern. And so I would say that this is why teleos is such a great word to use there um, for Jesus and and Matthew, because our tendency, just like the Pharisees that Matthew's debating with, is to make godliness about external behavior, which is the easy way, as opposed to making godliness about God doing a work in our interior person, in our hearts. And what that text is alluding to, what Matthew 5.48 is alluding to very clearly is Leviticus 19 and 20, and I think maybe you've mentioned this idea of the imitation of God, that this great command of the Old Testament to we to be holy as God is holy, and I think Matthew's Jesus here takes that phrase and twists it in a beautiful way. And instead of putting the word holy there, hagias, he puts teleos, because it's precisely the human tendency that the Pharisees also had to make holiness about external purity. Hmm. And this is exactly what Jesus is fighting against with the Pharisees, that they want to make godliness external purity. And he won't let them get away with that. So instead of quoting Leviticus 19 and 20, and saying, be holy as your Heavenly Father is holy, where the Pharisees could say, darn right, that's my point, you stupid fishermen. You know, instead he says something deeper. He says you have to be teleos, you have to be whole, even as God himself is whole and complete. And and so I, I hope that answers your question, that God is calling us to a wholeness of, of heart, not a perfection of behavior, but a, an attitude, a posture of receptivity and pursuing of him.
2: Well, you actually have it's interesting with the the parallel in Luke uh the be merciful uh and I am merciful um it, it, the same kind of um, challenge to the Pharisees uh is is in in focus there I mean the emphasis there is yeah. more on on the mercifulness of one's heart um and yeah. rather than than the wholeness of one's heart but you uh it, it reminds me of um Soren in cars you know to to will one thing to to be yep. fully dedicated devoted um what what i love what i like about uh this this view of of wholeness maturity um perfect not in the sense of sinless perfection the way we're thinking not that god doesn't call uh, us and hold us to the the standard of sinless perfection but that it, that's not what's in view here. what he uh, what, what, what's fascinating about this is that if you read the Sermon on the Mount, read this passage in its context and one of the ways we, we always like to talk about how we would preach or teach this this text and yeah. and and one of the the things I would point out and when I when I address this passage in light of the rest of the sermon is uh, the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be formative of hearts and habits. Um, yep. And so the the you talk about the Jewish background and the wisdom literature, but then you also have the Greek uh, background as well um, with uh, uh, virtue and uh, you mentioned Aristotle and, and, and whatnot. I, there is a, a, a sense in which we tend to, in our day and age, it seems like, to shy away from um, habits that help cultivate virtue because we think – that it needs to be spontaneous, rather than realizing that habits of the heart actually can move us in the direction of um, of virtue becoming second nature to us. And so right. when I when I think of wholeness in this context, coming right after Jesus has said, um, you know, you you need to be like your father. Look at how he loves all. So you love, you know, not just your. Uh, your friends and neighbors, not just your fellow people, but also your enemies. What no. what he's saying is, become the kind of person in whose heart is second nature to actually, uh, to actually love in this way. That is the 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 picture that I see there of 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 wholeness um, and and restoration. So anyway, that that's how I right. preach and and teach the text. Uh, Brandon, you have any other yeah, thoughts or questions? You know, you?
1: we we talk a lot too about how you don't want to try to soften kind of what Jesus says. So the one sense you don't say, well, Jesus is obviously calling you to something that is totally unattainable and you could never do. But there is a sense in which he's really challenging us to pursue something that is hard, that is difficult, that's not uh, easy to us, that, that wouldn't come easy to us. Kind of like you said, Dr. Pennington, the, the Pharisees are, could easily say, oh, yeah, I do that. Um, and that's easy for us as well. Uh, anything else that you would add to that, Dr. Pennington?
0: Yeah, uh, boy, there's so many. Those are great thoughts. Thanks, guys. And there are other things we could say. I would just point us to two passages in Matthew that confirm what we're talking about here. One is the thesis statement for the Whole Sermon on the Mount, which is in 517 to 20, which for which 548, the text we're talking about, is actually one of the kind of conclusion statements, like a book into that. Right. The thesis statement of 517 to 20 ends with 520 saying, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, or else you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, if you look at five twenty-one through 47, what you have are six examples, then, of what that deeper or greater righteousness looks like, and what it looks like is not just external behavior, but relating to God from the heart. So not just murdering people, not, not murdering people, but not hating people, mm-hmm. not not committing adultery but not actually having a heart of lust and it goes on and on and so 548 is really culmination of that same argument it's not in my opinion it's not just connected to the law of command although that's an appropriate um climactic sixth example but it's actually governing all of 521 to 48 as kind of a conclusion concluding bookend saying in all these ways don't just relate to god externally you got to relate from the heart so that's that's and the second is the only other place the teleos occurs in Matthew is in the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. That's
2: right. And there you
0: have, you have a, an incarnation and fleshing out of the exact same principle again, because you have a, a godly young man. By anybody's standards, we want him on our deacon board. We want him. Uh, <laughs> we want and, him and donating, our, right? <laughs> yeah, we want him donating money for sure. We definitely want him as a trustee at right, our institutions. But he and because he is. He is really—I don't think there's anything, any reason to doubt that he's being sincere when he has, says that he has obeyed these commands. I don't mm-hmm. think we should mock him for that or say, oh, he's just being proud. I mean, it is possible to be a godly person externally, and, and this man seems to be a truly externally godly person. He's obeying the commands of his God faithfully. But Jesus goes for the jugulars and always he does. He goes for the heart. And he points out that there was something going on in this young man's life that was interior, that was an interior problem, not an exterior one, and that is that he loved money. And so he called, Jesus calls this man to, lo- to give up what he loves the most, and, and the result is it proves he's not a teleos person. He's only a hagios person. In other words, he obeys externally but he doesn't really have the wholeness that's required to enter, and as a result, he goes away, he doesn't enter the kingdom. So, you kind of have this you have both that he serves as a foil or as an alternate example to what Jesus teaches back in the Sermon on the Mount. I think,
1: yeah, that is that is really helpful. Well, Dr. Paynton, thank you so much. That was not only good scholarship, but but pastoral and worshipful, which is which is what we uh, always want to get from the scripture. So, thank you so much for hopping on with us and, and being so helpful well, in this passage. My pleasure, thank you. All right, Trevin, thank you for hopping on with me as always, and thank you all for listening. We will see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening. Word Matters has been presented by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages, but clear for today's audience. Find out more at csbible.com.